to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sickness to annoying teams at pub quiz, virtual or otherwise. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. Hi. So um, this episode today is a long time coming. And uh, I've been meaning to do it for a long time. And I've been resistant because, you know, it's kind of a conflict of interest because I'm related to him. And, you know, I don't want to name drop or anything. And I don't want to be like, you know, backdoor bragging about it or whatever. But I think it's important to learn more about him. So uh, today we're going to be talking about my brother-in-law, the Internet. People (laughs) already have so many questions, and I cannot wait to hear you explain this. Like, she's not joking, guys. No, she's not not just like, my brother-in-law in in Microsoft Chrome. That's not a thing. Microsoft (laughs) Explorer. Yeah. Internet Explorer. I got to go to bed. Internet Explorer, (laughs) my brother-in-law. No, this this is like a really complicated relationship yes it's a complicated relationship you know we love him he's he's you can't live with him you can't live without him you know that kind of situation uh but yeah my my brother-in-law is the internet and here's why so (laughs) so when I first met Steve and this is a story I tell everyone once a month yeah all the time (laughs) and he's used to it but when I first met Steve um we met at pub trivia and um, he, we went out for a drink, and um, he didn't want to order any food, and I was starving to death, so I got drunk um, because I wasn't going to sit there and eat a whole plate of fries if he wasn't hungry. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know who this guy is. So he told me in our first meeting that his mother coined the term surfing the internet. And I remember being like, what a weird brag what a weird brag also like what a stupid i remember coming to you julia and being Mm -hmm. like he told me that his mom invented the term surfing the internet like did he think that that was going to get me into bed or something like impress me like what a stupid lie and it turns out it's a hundred percent true so my my mother-in-law gene armor polly is net mom she is the mother of the internet mother of the internet so um before i start talking about the history of the internet i'm going to be talking about gene so gene was the director of the liverpool library north of syracuse and it was one of the first libraries in the country to utilize the internet as a resource basically Mm -hmm. um she also helped get the oneida nation online even before the white house had a website that's awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, she co-founded um, what's called PubLib, which is the first online listserv for public librarians worldwide to discuss internet policy, pitfalls, use, and opportunities associated with public libraries. Um, she wrote six editions of a book called Net Moms Internet Kids and Family Yellow Pages, which championed kids' web access and internet safety. Um, it was uh, translated into a bunch of uh, languages. Um, in some of the later editions, Steve got his own column in uh, Net Mom's Internet Kids and Family Yellow Pages. He was referred to as Net Kid, oh, which is like so good. I love it. Does he have that on his resume? Uh, I don't think so. I think he would be very embarrassed to have that on his resume. Net but Kids Guide to Cool 
<laughs> websites about jelly beans. I mean, he was like public. That's technically published. Um, she was also a board member of the Internet Society. Uh, she traveled the world to attend meetings and speaking about Internet regulation and safety. Again, she is known as Netmom. Her, uh, license her plate. vanity license plate <laughs> says Netmom. I think her email address is like mm-hmm. mom at netmom.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and um, the most like I, it's certainly not the most important thing about her, but it is the most like uh like the thing that you say at parties, she did coin the phrase surfing the internet in an article published in the Wilson Library Bulletin, which was a monthly professional magazine for librarians. And the way she got that idea was that she was writing the article and she noticed that her um, mouse pad had an image of a surfer on it. And so she thought that was like a good, you know, word to use mm-hmm. to describe using the internet. So. So, uh, the internet is Steve's brother. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we're going to talk about just the history of the internet and how, how it came about. And this is, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want any emails or tweets about this. <laughs> I'm hitting the high points only because the internet and the web are, it's just a very complicated system with like math and circuits and just like stuff that is just very involved. So if you want to learn more, Vint Cerf wrote a paper in 1997. Read that. It talks about the history of the internet. And how the tubes work. How the tubes work. How the circuits work. How you break it. How you break it. How you build it back up. Whatever. So um, to begin with, we as a species, we've been trying to categorize and attain all the knowledge we have into a database of sorts for a very long time. Right. So, for example, in 1728, Ephraim Chambers, a London globe maker, publishes the Cyclopedia or a Universal Dictionary of Arts and Sciences. It is the earliest attempt to link by association all the articles in an encyclopedia or, more generally, all the components of human knowledge. He wrote in his preface, quote, this we endeavored to attain by considering the several matters, i.e. topics, not only absolutely and independently as to what they are in themselves, but also relatively or as they respect each other. So we've been thinking about like how to how to access knowledge, how to attain information and organize it in a in a in a way so that more people can access it quicker. Classic enlightenment. Classic enlightenment. Am I right? Um, so in 1910, Belgian lawyers and bibliographers Paul Otlet and Henri de la Fontaine proposed a central repository for the world's knowledge organized by the Universal Decimal Classification. It was called the Mundanium, uh, and it would eventually house more than 15 million index cards, 100,000 files, and millions of images. And in 1934, Otlet further advanced his vision for the radiated library in which people worldwide will place telephone calls to his, quote, mechanical collective brain and will get back information as TV signals. So this was like, you know, a theory. This was something that they thought Mm -hmm. they could get off the ground. Then in 1936, H.G. Wells first predicts what's called the world brain. Uh, He wrote, the whole human memory can be and probably in short time will be made accessible to every individual. The time is close at hand when any student in any part of the world will be able to sit with his projector in his own study at his or her convenience to examine any book, any document in an exact replica. That's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. So the world brain was to be a central repository of the world's knowledge organized by a complex taxonomy invented by Wells. So clearly there has been a precedent for, you know, desiring this kind of thing. 
So the concept of data communication or transmitting data between two different places through an electromagnetic medium, such as radio or an electric wire, predates the introduction of the first computers, right? Mm -hmm. Such communication systems were typically limited to point-to-point -point communication between two end devices, like semaphore lines or telegraph systems and telex machines. So these can be considered early precursors to this kind of communication. Uh, and the telegraph in the late 19th century was the first fully digital communication system. So that's just yes. a cool trivia fact. <laughs> so up until about 1960, computers were huge, unwieldy, and self-contained. You could use them as a tool, but you couldn't necessarily make them talk to each other or transmit information across any distances using them. Um, but there were a bunch of people working towards making that happen. So... A man named Christopher Strachey, who became the Oxford University's first professor of computation, filed a patent application for time sharing in February of 1959. Uh, in June that year, he gave a paper called Time Sharing in Large Fast Computers at the UNESCO Information Processing Conference in Paris, where he passed the concept on to J.C.R. Licklider of MIT Licklider, vice president at Bolt Barrick and Newman, Inc., uh, and they discussed a computer network in his January 1960 paper called Man-Computer Symbiosis. <laughs> so a quote from that is, quote, a network of computers connected to one another by wideband communication lines, which provide the functions of present day libraries together with anticipated advances in information storage and retrieval and other symbiotic functions. So super like great reading, you know, just like pull it up right now, mm. read it. Take it to the beach. Yeah, take it to the beach, you know, something really exciting. So Paul Barron then publishes Reliable Digital Communication Systems Using Unreliable Network Repeater Nodes, the first of a series of papers that proposed the design for distributed networks using packet switching. And we'll talk about that for a second. A mm -hmm. method used to this day to transmit all types of information over the internet. And then a little later, Donald Davies at the UK's National Physical Laboratory, or NPL, independently developed the same idea. So there's a little bit of like linear thinking mm -hmm. here. <clears throat> uh, so while Baran used the term message blocks for his units of communication, Davies used the term packets. So I was like, what the hell is packet switching? So packet switching is essentially, and I, I use the the metaphor of, um, of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. So you know, Mike TV, how he said, you know, when TV, you, you, you get broken up into little pieces yes. and then it gets reassembled on the other side. That's basically what packet switching is with data. Mm -hmm. you, the pieces get sent over in smaller pieces because they can travel over greater distances being you know, smaller, and then they get reassembled on the other side. So that's what packet switching is. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of emails. Okay. <clears throat> so JCR Licklider. So JCR Licklider, he was known as either JCR or Lick. Like his friends called him Lick. <laughs> It's a real shame. I mean, I guess it's shorter than saying JCR. I guess so. Or just like, just call yourself Jim. Anyway, um, he became the director of the newly established Information Processing Techniques Office, or the IPTO, within the U.S. Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. So... Then Robert Taylor becomes the director of the Information Processing Te Techniques Office, IPTO, in 1966, and he intended to realize Licklider's idea of an interconnected networking system. So he proposes to his boss the ARPANET, so the Advanced Research Projects Agency Net, which is a network that would connect the different projects that ARPA was sponsoring, so <laughs> a way to like keep everything together. 
And at the time, each project had its own specialized terminal and unique set of user commands. So in order to talk to each terminal, you had to physically go to the computer oh, terminal yeah. that only spoke to that individual one. So he was like, what if we just had one computer that connected to everything? And that was ARPANET, basically. Bam. <clears throat> Bam. So they were like, great, I love this. So they awarded, ARPA awarded the contract to build this network to Bolt, Berenick, and Newman, or BBN Technologies. Um, and they're involved in like the early stages of the internet in a major way. And so I'll mention them like a bunch of times. So the first ARPANET link was established between the University of California, Los Angeles, and the Stanford Research Institute at 2230 hours on October 29th, 1969. The first message was the word login. Oh, that's boring. I know. It's super boring. Computer guys. Wasn't like the first, wasn't, sorry to jump in. Wasn't the first like text message like Merry Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it was. I mean. At least that has something. Yeah. Or um, what is it? Come here. I need you. That's the one for the (laughs) telephone. Yeah. Login. Yeah. All right. Fine. At least it's easy to remember. (laughs) Yeah. First message sent over the internet is the message login. So it was sent over ARPANET between the network node at UCLA and a second one at SRI. So Leonard Kleinrock of UCLA said, at the UCLA end, they typed in the L and asked SRI by phone if they received it. Got the L, came the voice reply. UCL typed in the O, asked if they got it, and received, got the O. UCLA then typed in the G, and the darn system crashed. Quite a beginning. On the second attempt, it worked fine. So by the end of that year, four host computers were connected together in the initial ARPANET. So this was like the beginning of, of the end, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, then in 1971, Bob Thomas at BBN creates the first computer virus. On purpose? Uh, on purpose. It was an experimental self-replicating program called Creeper, which copied itself to computers connected to the ARPANET and displayed the message, I'm the Creeper, catch me if you can. Jesus. I know that's very <laughs> that's very crazy like it seems too early to be like I wonder if somebody could infiltrate this <laughs> well here's the thing so it was it was interesting because this is clearly like um a the whole point of the internet at this point is like oh we want to connect to all of our different projects for the Department of Defense and our outsourced universities. Mm-hmm. And we don't want anyone to intercept our highly classified information yes, or our sure. Department of Defense stuff. So they they want to make sure that it's safe and that, that it's secure. So, of course, they're going to try and break it immediately as soon as they build it up. So that's why I'm assuming that's why Bob Thomas created the first computer I mean, virus. I guess that Bob. makes sense. But it's- I mean, it makes sense, but it's still funny that they were yeah. like, now let's destroy it. <laughs> I'm the creeper. <laughs> I'm the creeper. Um, so that same year, 1971, Ray Tomlinson at BBN writes the code for network email and sends the first email over the ARPANET. Uh, Tomlinson said, I used the at sign to indicate that the user was at some other host rather than being local. The first message was sent between two machines that were literally side by side. The only physical connection they had, aside from the floor that they sat on, was through the ARPANET. Ooh. Um, so again, it should be mentioned that there was definitely some linear thinking during this time. Mm-hmm. So lots of countries and governments and tech people were all trying to create fast, secure information transmission u- using computers and rudimentary networks. So there was, for example, Aloha Net at the University of Hawaii. There was Merit Network in Michigan. 
Uh, there was Cyclades in France. So, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different things. So with so many different network methods, something was needed to unify them so that they could eventually talk to each other and create like one large network. Mm-hmm. Ha So Bob Kahn of DARPA recruited Vinton Cerf of Stanford University to work with him on the problem. Gene Armour Polly is friends with Vince Cerf. <laughs> he's still around. I think he's still at Stanford. Um, Steve has a photo with him because he met him when he was in college. And so that'll be our header image for all of our social media is Steve is college Steve with Vince Cerf. Was he wearing earth tones or a dumb Hawaiian print shirt? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen it Sorry, yet, but he's going to dig it up for me. No, those were the only two things that he wore. Um, so, Steve, so Steve Crocker formed an ARPA networking working group with Vince Cerf. So at the meeting of the International Networking Working Group at Sussex University in 73, Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf present their work on connecting ARPANET and other existing networks by using a common internetwork protocol. So they later published the description of what became known as the Transmission Control Protocol slash Internet Protocol, or TCP-IP, in the May 1974 issue of IEEE Transactions on Communications Technology, the article was called A Protocol for Packet Network Intercommunication. Steve is a member of IEEE because he's an electronic engineer. Um, so I was like, hey, I know that magazine. It comes to my house. <laughs> um, also, this article contains the first attested use of the term internet okay. as shorthand for the word internetwork. Okay. All one word. So shortly thereafter, DARPA funded three independent implementations of the TCP IP protocol at Stanford with Vince Cerf, BBN with Ray Tomlinson, and University College London with Peter Kirstein. It's good. You got to get something across the pond, you know? Yeah, you got to get, yeah. Make sure, get the, some distance. make sure the packets can travel that far. Exactly, exactly. Make sure Mike TV gets back in, on his TV the way he wants to. Um, so on January 1st, 1983, all the ARPANET hosts switched to TCP IP. And this is considered the birthday of the internet. What's the date? January 1st, 1983. Great. So Steve's brother is three years older than him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in November of 1983, um, a ref- request for comment. So I'll talk a little bit about request for comments, but it's basically like, like a, an article saying like, hey, I came up with this thing mm-hmm. and let me know what you think, yeah. basically. But I'll talk a little bit more about that. So the RFC 882 was published describing the domain name system or DNS invented by Paul Macapetris at the University of California, Irvine. The increase in the number of independently managed networks, so mostly local area networks, meant that maintaining a single table of hosts' names. So hosts were assigned names so that it was not necessary to remember their numeric addresses, like mm-hmm. Bill and Todd and, you know, whatever. This was no longer feasible, and a hierarchical distributed naming system for computers, services, or any resource connected to the internet was needed. So they're like, you kind we of need to Bill do- over here, but then Bill in yeah. California and Bill in Texas and whatever. Exactly. And so it's like, they're you like, can only have one numbers. domain. Exactly. You can only have one domain. So they were like, let's do some numbers here. Uh, then in 1985, British computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee writes, Information Management, a proposal. And mm-hmm. he circulates that at CERN, which was the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Switzerland, where he worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and precursors to the web browser emerged in the form of hyperlinked applications during the mid and late 1980s. Um, the bare concept of hyperlinking had by then existed for some decades, but this was like 
more sophisticated. Yes. So following these, Tim Berners-Lee is credited with inventing the World Wide Web in 1989 and developing in 1990 both the first web server and the first web browser called World Wide Web, no spaces. World Wide Web. Which was later renamed Nexus. Okay. So um, I'm going to take a quick break here and talk about the difference between the internet and the World Wide Web. Because they're two different things. Yeah. Yeah. Please. So the the internet is the network. Mm-hmm. So it's the computers, it's the hardware, it's the the systems that are in place in order for things to like distribute the information. It's the interstate highway. It's the interstate highway. The World Wide Web is kind of the cars, I want to say. How am I making? It's the web. It's like the web over the internet. It's the it's the structure around the 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 architecture where you can access information and share information so the web is like how you get there basically so the internet is the highway and yes. the world wide web is the map over it sure yeah you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you guys know what i'm saying don't send me any emails <laughs> um so <laughs> Uh, many she other, will disable those packets. I will disable those packets so fast. My brother is the internet. He will shut it down for me. No, he doesn't listen to me. So many other um, many other web browsers were soon developed with Mark Andreessen's 1993 Mosaic, which was later Netscape. Uh, okay. Um, and that one was particularly easy to use and install and was often credited with sparking the internet boom of the 1990s. I mean, I use Netscape. I don't know about you, but like... I've been local public library, of course Yeah, I that was the only... Netscape as far Navigator. as I was concerned. Exactly. That was, as far as I was concerned, that was the only one, you know. So, <clears throat> now it's the 90s. The web is going gangbusters, Right. So the Gopher Protocol, which is designed for distributing, searching, and retrieving documents over the internet, is released by a University of Minnesota team led by Mark McCahill in 1991. Tim Berners-Lee publishes the code for the World Wide Web on the internet the same year. He's just like, here you go. Here's the code. Go to town. Uh, And then on December 12th, the first website in the United States goes live which was home to the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory. Oh, that's boring. Um, yeah, well, just <laughs> get ready for this. The first website ever went live two years earlier in 1989 um, with catchy address of nxoc01.cern.ch. So, again, not super exciting. Uh, Then, a month after Gene coins the term surfing the internet, Tim Berners-Lee posts the first photo uploaded to the web, showing the all-female parody pop group Les Horribles Cernets, (laughs) consisting of four of his colleagues at CERN. I've seen it. It's very cute. That's funny. It's very... It's clearly like a Halloween party thing, or like it was just kind of like a funny... I thought of that part of it, I guess. Like, um, I'm taking a sidebar. So, a lot of my job deals with... Um, deals with early video game history and early computer game history and stuff like that. And so, yeah, computers could handle rudimentary graphics in the in the 70s and 80s yeah, um, and then into the 90s. And a lot of the games that you would play on computers in the 80s were very like text-based adventure games. And so you'd type like walk or you'd type mm-hmm. run or things like that. And that would kind of like cause your next steps in the games to happen. So yeah, I guess thinking that computers could do graphics 
like 20 years before you could send a picture to somebody else yeah. on the using another computer is really interesting. Yeah. It's just it seems so strange that because they were so self-contained, like you could do a lot more just on a self-contained computer, but then when the internet came about, it was it wasn't harder, it was just like it it seemed like you had to start from scratch all over again, right? Yeah. Like to kind s- of. to send it across. Yeah. is like much more different than just like generating it on your own computer mm-hmm. in your office or whatever. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to think about. Um, just a quick note about Mosaic. It was a graphical browser which ran on several popular office and home computers. And it is credited with first bringing multimedia content to non-technical users by including images and text on the same page, unlike previous browser designs. Okay. So uh, Mark Andreessen, its creator, also established the company that in 1994 released Netscape Navigator, which resulted in one of the early browser wars, where it ended up in a competition for dominance, which it lost with Microsoft Windows Internet Explorer. Browser wars. Browser wars. Um, Then commercial use restrictions were lifted in 1995, and the online service America Online offered their users a connection to the internet via their own internal browser. So at this point, we're talking about like mid to late 90s. The internet was mostly used for mailing lists, emails, e-commerce, and early popular online shopping. So Amazon and eBay, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also for online forums and bulletin boards, uh, personal websites and blogs, and use was growing rapidly. But by more modern standards, the system used were static and lacked widespread social engagement. So if you think about it, like you could have a personal website, but it was sad. How would anybody get to it? Exactly. How would anybody get to it? And also like how could you engage with it kind of thing? Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of like engagement with. It was just kind of like, I'm gonna bring this up and read it. Welcome to my page. Exactly. Welcome to my page. Here's some photos. Um, so essentially it was waiting for events in the early two thousands to change from a communications technology only to gradually develop into a key part of global society's infrastructure. So this previous period is known as Web 1.0. So during the period from 1997 to 2001, the first speculative investment bubble related to the internet took place in which dot-com companies were propelled to exceedingly high valuations as investors rapidly stoked stock values, followed by a market crash, which was the first dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. We lived through it, but this, however... It didn't impact us. (laughs) No, it didn't impact us, you know, Yeah. And it only temporarily slowed enthusiasm and growth, which quickly recovered and continued to grow. I mean, we still have the internet, right? So so the changes that would propel the internet into its place as a social system took place during a relatively short period of, of like around five years, starting from 2004. Mm-hmm. So these changes included this call to Web 2.0. Mm-hmm. So this describes websites that emphasize user-generated content, including user-to-user interactions, so like social, right? usability, and interoperability. So it first appeared, the, the phrase Web 2.0, in a January 1999 article called Fragmented Future, written by Darcy DiNucci, who was a consultant on electronic information design. Um, Web 2.0 doesn't actually refer to any like technical specification Mm -hmm. but rather to just cumulative changes in the way web pages are made and used so it describes an approach in which sites focus substantially upon allowing users to interact and collaborate with each other 
in a social media dialogue as creators of user-generated content in a virtual community in contrast to websites where people are limited to the passive viewing of content. Mm -hmm. So she was like, you know what we need to do with this internet thing, this World Wide Web thing? We should start talking to each other and, and collaborating and making it into like a really creative space. Right. Um, another thing that helped with Web 2.0 to become a thing is accelerating adoption and commoditization among households and familiarity with the necessary hardware. So like more people were buying computers. Yes. More people could afford computers. More people wanted to use computers. More people were like learning about them. Um, so that was like a big thing as well. I know like it was we got our first computer, I think, in like 96, I think. And it was like. We bought it secondhand and it was slow as hell, but we were just like absolutely blown mm -hmm. away by how we could like get email. Like that was like such a thing. Anyway, um, another thing that helped was accelerating storage technology and data access speeds. So hard drives emerged during this time. Um, the, this took over from floppy disks, right? And right. storage grew from megabytes to gigabytes and around 2010 terabytes, right? Mm -hmm. Um RAM from hundreds of kilobytes to gigabytes as typical amounts on a system, and Ethernet, the enabling technology for TCP IP, moved from common speeds of kilobits to tens of megabits per second to gigabits per second. So the internet became faster. Very fast. And we could store a lot more of it. Mm -hmm. um, also, high-speed internet and wider coverage of data connections at lower prices, allowing larger traffic rates, more reliable, simpler traffic, and traffic from more locations. So just more access to the internet, basically. Mm -hmm. um, also, the gradually accelerating perception of the ability of computers to create new means and approaches to communication, the emergence of social media and websites such as Twitter and Facebook to their later prominence, and global collaboration such as Wikipedia, um, which existed before but gained prominence as a result of this kind of global right. collaboration thing. Yeah, I, I seem to remember, like, you know, before 2004, so like, when I was still in high school, everything. Mm -hmm. I seem to remember a lot of like email forwards and like email chain letters and, and yep. things that you would like send out to your friends. Like, like let's answer 20 questions about yourself or like put a little X next to all the things you've done. Or yep. mm -hmm. you remember things like that? And like yes, that absolutely. was how you interacted with people before all of the social networking and everything was like you learned that your friend Sam really liked mac and cheese yeah like through an email like forward yeah and a lot of times it was like forwarded from like a bunch of people you didn't know or mm -hmm. like the thread was like yeah, super long, so long. scrolling and scrolling oh, with and scrolling. all the lines and the mm -hmm. air carrots and oh oh my god yeah oh Mm, I remember my that dad time. still sends me something like that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> do they like, still exist? Oh, my oh, God. Thing, well, things like you'll never believe these 20 photos from history are real. Like, oh, yeah, you of know. course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember cute. I, I do distinctly remember like looking stuff up on Snopes. Oh, yes. Like in like around 2005, 2006, uh -huh. because you'd get emails that were like, you know, don't drink your water. The fluoride's going to give you brain cancer. And you'd have to like Google it and be like, no, this isn't true. <laughs> but we it. weren't Googling yet. Oh, no, not Google it. You would go to Snopes, Snopes.com. Mm -hmm. And then you would put in fluoride brain cancer. And then it would come <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, such a simpler time. So let's talk about like internet 
like who's who's watch who watches the watchers you know what i mean <laughs> who's watching the internet so because yeah, what the if internet someone, um, what if like someone's cat like gets all tangled up in the cord and unplugs it exactly so what if someone unplugs the internet then we're all screwed so as a globally distributed network of voluntarily interconnected autonomous networks the internet operates without a central governing body i could have told you that <laughs> uh, each constituent network chooses the technologies and protocols it deploys from the technical standards that are developed by the Internet Engineering Task Force, or the IETF. Okay. This is a loosely self-organized group of international volunteers who contribute to the engineering and evolution of Internet technologies. It is the principal body engaged in the development of new Internet standard specifications, and much of its work is organized into working groups. Um, and there, there's working groups all over the world. It's just an enormous group. Um, standardization efforts of the working groups are often adopted by the internet community, but the IETF does not control or patrol the internet. Um, RFCs, request for comments, are the main documentation for the work of the IETF and other ad hoc groups that provide technical direction of the internet. So there's that. Uh, the Defense Data Network... Network Information Center, or the DDNNIC, at the Scientific Research Institute in Menlo Park, handled all registration services at first, including the top-level domains of .mil, .gov, .edu, .org, .net, .com, and .us. Mm-hmm. Uh, .mil is for military, .gov is for government, .edu is for education, .org is for organizations, .net is just like the internet. It's like spare. It said miscellaneous. Yeah, miscellaneous. Um, Dot com. I didn't realize this. Dot com is for commercial. Yes. So or commerce, um, which I didn't realize. I guess I just never thought about it. And dot us, which is the, you know, United States domain. Right. Root name server administration. Um, So. Internet Number Assignments and Root Name Server Administration under a United States Department of Defense contract were handled by the DDNNIC. Uh, However, by 1993, since most of the growth of the internet was coming from non-military sources, it was decided that the Department of Defense would no longer fund registration services outside of the .mil uh, domain. That makes sense, because if they (laughs) had to register every time someone did geocities.com slash tilde angel baby 69 (laughs) xx tilde that would just Mm -hmm. that'd be just a pain so in 1998 all dns and ip address functions were reorganized under the control of ICANN, or the internet (laughs) corporation for assigned names and numbers Um, it is a california nonprofit corporation uh, contracted by the united states department of commerce to manage a number of internet related tasks wait so who can name the who can name them uh, I can. You can? Oh! oh. Hey-yo! Um, very funny. My mother-in-law <laughs> was on the at-large advisory com- council for ICANN from 2004 to 06. So, there's that. Um, also, this was when Steve was in college and, like, traveling a lot. That was another thing. Steve spent, because Jean was on the Internet Society and on ICANN, and because she was going to all these meetings all over the world and stuff, Steve went with her because he's an only child. Well, he's, you know, um, his brother's the internet. But uh, (laughs) so it was probably a year into us dating when we went to visit his parents and his mom was, you know, talking 
to us about stuff. And she was like, oh, do you remember when we were in Luxembourg and you ate that really stinky cheese? Do you remember when we were in Singapore and it was so hot? And do you remember when we were in New Zealand? And I remember looking over at him and I was like, what the hell? And we got into the car to drive home and I was like, um, how many countries have you been to? Like, I had no idea Uh that he was as well-traveled as he is or was. Mm -hmm. Like, a full calendar year into our (sighs) dating. I was like, why didn't you say anything to me? He was like, well, I don't want to, like, brag about it. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you could just, like, you could tell me. Yeah. And, of course, you know, up until this point, I was like, I spent 10 days in London on a high school trip. (laughs) Like, I was, like, (laughs) being all like, you know, I'm very well-traveled. You know, I hadn't been on a plane until I was 18 years old. I used to go to Canada. I used to go to Canada. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Have you ever been to Canada, Steve? <laughs> I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> so I look like a big old dummy because this guy is like... He has like 68 stamps on his passport. Yeah, he kissed Vince Surf on the mouth. Like all this stuff. <laughs> it's <was> ridiculous. <laughs> I still bring it up. I bring it up with him probably once a month. I'll be like, hey, remember when you lied to me about your life? <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, no, it's not true. Um, So there's also the Internet Society. The Internet Society is an international nonprofit organization founded during 1992 to assure the open development, evolution, and use of the Internet for the benefit of all people throughout the world. Okay. So to make sure Uh, that, like, the evil overlords just couldn't use it for nefarious purposes only. Exactly. Exactly. So with offices near Washington, D.C. and in Geneva, Switzerland, um, the Internet Society has a membership base comprising more than 80 organizational and more than 50,000 individual members. Uh, Members also form chapters based on either common geographical location or special interests. There are currently more than 90 chapters around the world. And Jean was on the board of trustees from 1993 to 1996, of course. Also, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, was becoming concerned about threats to the web's future uh, during this time period. And in November of 2009 at the IGF in Washington, D.C., he launched the World Wide Web Foundation, or the WWWF... (coughs) Triple dub. Uh, Triple dub. uh, To campaign to make the web a safe and empowering tool for the good of humanity with access to all. And in November 2019 at the IGF in Berlin, Berners-Lee and the WWWF went on to launch the Contract for the Web, a campaign initiative to persuade governments, companies, and citizens to commit to nine principles to stop misuse with the warning, quote, if we don't act now and act together to prevent the web being misused by those who want to exploit, divide, and undermine, we are at risk of squandering its potential for good. Hmm. Would have been nice if everybody had adhered to that. Yeah, that would have been real, real nice. But Tim Berners-Lee can only do so much. You know, he published one the man. code on the internet. He's just one man. Um, also, let me talk a little bit about net neutrality. So... Net neutrality is the principle that internet service providers must treat all internet communications equally and not discriminate or charge differently based on user, content, website, platform, application, type of equipment, source address, destination address, or method of communication. Net neutrality was in the news a couple years ago since the FCC was considering a new rule that would permit internet service providers to offer content providers a faster track to send content. Which basically means that service providers can slow or limit your internet as much as they'd like to force you to move to a higher price point. Um, And the idea is that the internet should be a utility, not a luxury. Right. 
Um, and this is something that um, I think they actually didn't pass, which is ridiculous. Like net neutrality should be a thing. But this leads us to the work of Larry Irving. So um, uh, another side note about Gina Rapali. Last year, Steve and I flew our asses to Costa Rica because Steve's mom was getting inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame. Which is not located in Costa Rica. But it's not located anywhere. The internet, the internet Hall of Fame is all around us, as we mentioned in Julia's just uh, little Hall packets, quiz. just little packets all over the place, <laughs> um, <laughs> spinning around. So, um, I, full disclosure, I was not a hundred percent sure that this that, was real. That any of this that you was guys real. were not just getting kidnapped in the jungle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Julia was like, "I'm going to need you to like text me pretty frequently, and I'm going to be sending you questions that only the real Lauren would know." <laughs> every so often and she did it was very funny but um as it turns out it's real i met some amazing people including larry irving so larry irving um is a wonderful guy i met him because i shared my umbrella with him because it was raining in beautiful costa rica and we were going to i think like a mixer or whatever and he is a very outgoing guy who loves wine so of course he and i hit it off like nobody's business and his uh beautiful wife just got a master's degree in divinity she is also wonderful he's a great guy he lives in washington dc but larry was the head of the national telecommunications infrastructure administration or the ntia which is an agency of the united states department of commerce that serves as the president's principal advisor on telecommunication policies pertaining to the united states economic and technological advancement and to regulation of the telecommunications industry he was a principal architect of President Bill Clinton's telecommunications, internet, and e-commerce policies and initiatives, and acted as senior advisor to the president and to Vice President Al Gore and the United States Secretary of Commerce during his tenure from 93 to 99. He was also a member of the Clinton-Gore transition team focusing on telecommunications issues, and more recently he worked with President Barack Obama's transition team on science and tech agencies. And while serving the NTIA, uh, he authored three reports entitled Falling Through the Net, which are very influential. Mm. It highlighted the scope and the consequences of inequities in access to information technology. He's very passionate about this. He helped define the scope of and to bring public attention to the digital divide, which is a term referring to the gap between people with effective access to digital and information technology and those with very limited or no access at all. And, you know, of course, during the pandemic, we talked about this, like there were kids who were because they don't have internet at home right like parked in front of their local library or their school all day yeah because they needed the wi-fi from school because they don't have it at home in order to like go to school so this is something that he has been like active about um and uh so he's he's great i'm friends with him on facebook now he and gina rapali are (laughs) he and gina rapali are extremely tight um, and he knows everybody's name and he's just like, he knows everybody though. Um, I also at the internet hall of fame induction weekend <laughs> last September, <laughs> I also met Mike Godwin, the guy who, uh, coined Godwin's law of the internet and the inventor. I forgot about this inventor of the notion of the meme. He invented it. I met him. Wow, we had dinner. You met the original meme Lord. I met the original meme Lord. So all of you can go to hell actually mike and i spent almost whole weekend together <laughs> remind mike us what I- godwin's law is godwin's law is an internet adage asserting that 
As an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. <laughs> so this was in 1990. Um, wow. Yeah. So this was all the way back in 1990. He was like, hmm. When, I bet only, people- the, when only the good computer nerds had access <laughs> yep. to internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he realized. He realized he was like, this is not looking good. Um, he is also representing TikTok in uh, TikTok's counter lawsuit against the Trump administration because he's a lawyer. <laughs> I am also friends with him on Facebook. <laughs> and I keep asking him to join Learned League because he wants to join Learned League, but he keeps missing the email. So, oh. but yeah, Mike and I are tight now. We're best <laughs> friends. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Can I tell you how many internet Hall of Famers I handed our business card to, our podcast card to. I was shameless. I was like, this isn't real. I decided it wasn't real. So I was like, hey, Mike, you want to you wanna listen to my podcast? I actually, like, while I was talking to, to Larry Irving, uh, I just, as he was, like, making eye contact with me, I just tapped our business card into his front pocket because I knew oh, he would think it was funny. That's great. He did think it was funny. But, um, yeah, I had no shame when he came to that. And bless Steve because he put up with me. But anyway. A um, couple of fun trivia facts about the internet. Please. In episode 20 of the sixth season of television sitcom Benson, in February of 1985, the protagonists of the show go to the bomb cellar to try and prepare for a nuclear attack. Hilarious episode. So a scene where the ARPANET is accessed is the first incidence of a popular TV show directly referencing the network. How about so that? Go. Yeah. Isn't that something? Uh, in March of 1985, the first commercial internet domain name, Symbolics.com, is registered by Symbolics, Inc., a computer company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. See, that's a great name. That's a great name. Symbolics. Fantastic. Uh, in November of 1993, the video camera monitoring the Trojan coffee pot at the University of Cambridge's computer laboratory is connected to the web, becoming the first webcam. I love that. Uh, what before entertained a few locally connected people became a worldwide show with 1 million hits by 1996. Oh my gosh. Um, in summer of 1994, a large pepperoni, mushroom, and extra cheese pizza from Pizza Hut is ordered online, possibly the first transaction on the World Wide Web. What year was that? Uh, summer of 1994. <laughs> and you can still buy pizza online. Um, in October of 1994, Hotwired is the first website to sell banner ads in large quantities to a wide range of major corporate advertisers. Oh my gosh, do you remember the the Wild Wild West of the 90s with all the pop-up ads? Oh my God, it was like a nightmare. Well, ooh, I'm going to talk about this like okay. almost next. Okay. First of all, in 1996, Nokia released the Nokia 9000 communicator, which was the first cell phone with a web browser. So Nokia had the first cell phone with a web browser. Um, in fall of 1996, Ethan Zuckerman creates the first pop-up ad. <sighs> Zuckerman. In, yeah. Any people with the first the Zuck, Zuck anything, they made bad they, things. They Zuck. For the internet. Yeah, they Zuck. Uh, in 2014, he would apologize for the internet's original sin. <laughs> Qu- quote, the pop-up ad was a way to associate an ad with a user's page without putting it directly on the page, which advertisers worried would imply an association between their brand and the page's content. Specifically, we came up with it when a major car company freaked out that they'd bought a banner ad on a page that celebrated anal sex. I wrote the code to launch the window and run an ad at it. I'm sorry. Our intentions were good. And finally, 
April 2012, the Internet Society founds the Internet Hall of Fame to celebrate, quote, the living history of the Internet and the individuals whose extraordinary contributions have made the Internet, its worldwide availability and use, and its transformative nature possible. I thought we could get through a whole episode of the Internet without talking about anal sex, but here we are. (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I mean, it's just it just goes hand in hand. You know, he's a real that guy. Anyway. (laughs) So I know I didn't hit on everything of the history of the Internet, but those are like the the good Good trivia stuff. Absolutely. A nice timeline. The names trivia. to know. The names to know, for sure. Vince Cerf, Tim Berners-Lee, Jean Armapolly. Yeah. <laughs> I can't she's wait until um, she's a Learned League answer. Oh, yeah. She's going to be a Learned League answer. I she's mean, they'll on, say, um, they'll pro- they would probably phrase it like, Jean Armapolly coined what? What, what common phrase? Yeah. Telecommunications mm-hmm. phrase mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. We'll see. We'll see if, um, Mom. if our boy Thorsten is listening to us. So, my quiz today is called Not So Famous Brothers-in-Law. So, this might be a little complicated, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to name the brothers-in-law of these presidents, Mm -hmm. as well as some facts about that president, and you name the president. Okay. Okay? Okay. So, number one, William and Thomas Ryan. This president lost the race for governor of California in 1962, established the EPA, sweaty. Question number two. Walter, William, Isaac, and John Payne. Father of the Constitution. By treaty or war, added 23 million acres of Native American land to the United States. Hypochondriac and fun guy. Number three, Hugh and Tony Rodham. Third youngest president at 46, signed NAFTA into law, first Democrat since FDR to be elected to second full term. Number four, William Gerald Jerry and Murray Lee Smith. Longest lived president still alive, one term, simple farmer. Number five, Frank, George, and David Wallace. Only president since William McKinley who did not earn a college degree. Oversaw the Berlin Airlift and Marshall Plan in 1948. Loved Key West. Number six, Thomas and Antonio Taylor. Only served three years as president. Escalated involvement in Vietnam. Sexual harasser. Number seven, Kermit Corot, championed the square deal economic policies, got shot and kept talking, adventurous. Number eight, Thomas Johnson, served as an ambassador, a senator, and a representative for Massachusetts, son of a previous president, ranked by historians as mediocre. Number nine, James and Scott Pierce. One term. Thousand points of light speech. Appointed David Souter and Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. And finally, number 10. John, William, and Bartholomew Dandridge. Military general. 
represented the Virginia House of Burgess, established Mr. President. I'll give you about a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. Now, these I made a little bit harder because I know you're a president, Gail. I know my presidents. Yeah. So I, I wanted to make once it I like realized, a little like, tough. If I got the last name of the in-laws, that it would mm-hmm. be easier on me. But yeah, um, that made more sense. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's do this. Okay. Number one, William and Thomas Ryan lost the race for governor of California in 1962, established the EPA, sweaty. Uh, this is Richard Nixon. That's Tricky Dick Nixon. His yes, wife ma'am. was Pat Ryan. Pat Ryan. Number two, Walter, William, Isaac, and John Payne. Father of the Constitution. By treaty or war, added 23 million acres of Native American land to the t- United States. Hypochondriac and fun guy. Uh, James Madison. It is James Madison. Um, I just recently saw there is... Um, a podcast called plotting about the presidents or plotting for the presidents or something Mm -hmm. like that. And they just did an episode on James Madison where they talk about that. He had a reputation for being just like super boring and kind of not nice. But as it turns out, he was like hilarious in private life. Um, And he had like a really weird sense of humor and published a couple of like kind of gossipy things. So I'm definitely going to listen to that because it sounds awesome. But I I mean, he was a real shit sir in Hamilton, but yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, I'll watch it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, Hugh and Tony Rodham, third youngest president at 46, signed NAFTA into law, first Democrat since FDR to be elected to second full term. It's a Bill Clinton. It is Bill Clinton. Nice job. You're killing it. I knew you would. Number four, William Gerald Jerry and Murray Lee Smith, longest lived president still alive, one term, simple farmer. That's Jimmy Carter. It is Jimmy Carter. Rosalind Smith. Simple peanut farmer from Georgia. Okay, number five. Frank, George, and David Wallace. Only president since William McKinley who did not earn a college degree. Oversaw the Berlin Airlift and Marshall Plan in 1948. Loved Key West. That's my man, Harry S. Truman. That's your boy, Harry S. Truman. His wife, Bess Wallace. Bess Wallace. Um, I wanted to include this little fun fact about Harry S. Truman. Uh, He once wrote to a music critic who gave his daughter's singing concert a bad review. This is what he wrote. 
I've just read your lousy review of Margaret's concert. I've come to the conclusion that you are an eight ulcer man on four ulcer pay. It seems to me that you are a frustrated old man who wishes that he could be successful. When you write such poppycock as was in the back section of the paper you work for, it shows conclusively that you're off the beam and at least four of your ulcers are at work. Someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. Pegler, another journalist. A gutter snipe is a gentleman alongside you. I hope you'll accept that statement as a worse insult than a reflection on your ancestry. I love him. He was was mad. I I love love Harry S. Truman. What a cutie. Number six, Thomas and Antonio Taylor. Only served three years as president. Escalated involvement in Vietnam. Sexual harasser. This, yeah, this was my uh, my hiccup. Um, I mean, I I suppose that the answer would be Gerald Ford. It's so Lyndon B. Johnson. Years. He was president for more than three years. Was he? Yeah. Shoot. Okay. Sorry, that's my fault. You get that right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> I realized that when you were like, like being like, because uh, I was like, oh, shit, did I get Gerald Ford and Lyndon B. Johnson mixed up again? <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so that's on me. I'm sorry. Served four years as president. Escalated involvement in Vietnam. <laughs> sexual harasser. Lyndon B. Johnson was a sexual harasser, though. All right. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Number seven. Kermit Corot. Champion the square deal economic policies. Got shot and kept talking. Adventurous. I mean, you said Kermit and the answer is Teddy oh, Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah, it's Teddy Roosevelt. Um, so I'm going to talk about how he got shot and kept talking. So <laughs> he was doing a campaign speech and he said to the crowd, friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. And then he said, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot. <laughs> So the audience in the Milwaukee Auditorium on October 14th, 1912, gasped as the former president unbuttoned his vest to reveal his bloodstained shirt. He said, it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. He then reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a bullet riddled 50 page speech, holding up his prepared remarks, which had two big holes blown through each page. Roosevelt continued. Fortunately, I had my manuscript. So you see, I was going to make a long speech and there is a bullet. This is where the bullet went through, and it probably saved me from going into my heart. The bullet is in me now, so that I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. (laughs) (laughs) And then he he continued talking. There's now a bullet inside me, everybody. Just, (laughs) uh, I'm still here. Just know that it's still me here. I'm going to talk. Still talking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still lucid. I can see and I can hear. So let's do this, everybody. Ah, What a guy. What a guy. All right. Number eight. Thomas Johnson. Served as an ambassador, a senator, and a representative for Massachusetts. Son of a previous president. Ranked by historians as mediocre. That's John Quincy Adams. That is John Quincy Adams. Number nine. James and Scott Pierce. One term. Thousand points of light speech. Appointed David Souter and Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. It's uh, George H.W. Bush. It is George H.W. Bush. Barbara Pierce. Who was apparently 
just a terrifying woman. I love like her apparently too. even her mother-in-law was afraid of her. Her mother-in-law was afraid of her. <laughs> like that's how fierce she was. Ugh. So bless her. And finally, number 10, John, William, and Bartholomew Dandridge. Military general, represented the Virginia House of Burgess, established Mr. President. That's uh, the, the OG, George, George Washington. OG, George Washington. Nice job. I'm sorry, I fucked up on one of the, on one of the No, it's okay. So yeah, Dang. LBJ was president from 63 to 69, or 63 to 68. Yeah, yeah. Beginning of 69, technically. Um, he was vice president for three years from 61 that's what to I was, 63. See, that's where I got the information so, wrong. So just, just a little clarification for everybody. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, do not. If you get that wrong, you can <laughs> you, you can email me then. You can email me if you get that wrong. Be like, I'm sorry. That's on me. Anyway. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. That's uh, definitely check out the Internet Hall of Fame. It's kind of a cool like they have a great website and my mother-in-law's bios on there. And yeah, so that's my one, you know, conversation thing at parties. Be like, oh yeah, my mother-in-law invented the term surfing the internet. Goodbye. There you go. Like it's, that's a good, <laughs> just like say it and, and leave, you know? Yeah. I've had more people say like, that's not true. That couldn't possibly be true. And then I have to have them like go to Wikipedia and like, yeah, see, like it's, it's, a, thing. it's a real thing. Like I did the same thing. Don't worry. I said the exact same thing. <laughs> I was like, mm, that can't possibly be true. And so Julie and I had to Google it and it was true. So yeah, Gina Marpoli. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, da, 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 da. We got some merch on T Public if you're interested. Yeah, check out our merch. Thank yeah. you. Um, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. We're on the Twitter at yep. misinfopod. We have a Facebook page, misinformation colon a trivia podcast. Sometimes we post like extra links and extra info if we mention things in an episode to our Facebook or Twitter in case you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a website www.misinfopod.com Yeah. I mean, I think that hits all of the, yeah. the high notes. I mean, I figured since we were doing an internet episode, we could probably oh, say yeah. the stuff again. That's true. You yeah. Know. You can reach us on the internet. We are very accessible on the internet. On internet. Yes. On internet. <laughs> Less so in person. <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah i mean i think we're all kind of unavailable right now but but anyway uh thanks for listening guys yeah we will catch you next time bye, bye.